Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Home, and by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, uh, Anne, for reading for us this morning. And uh, there is a bit of an outline of uh, what I'll be speaking about on the uh, notice sheet that you got as you came in. And I'm really glad to be, have the opportunity to share with you this morning something about uh, this topic of evidence from creation, uh, evidence that there might be a God, even as we live in such a scientific world. Now, personally, I've actually always had a real interest in science and technology. Uh, as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by how things work and taking things apart and reading books about that kind of thing. I remember when I was about seven years old, I had received a, uh, a slot racing car set for Christmas, and it was a battery-operated slot car set, and so, of course, after about a week, the batteries had uh, gone flat, and it was no longer working, but uh, I knew at this point a little bit about electricity. I knew the electricity went through wires, and I also knew, of course, that there was electricity in the, uh, that came out of the plugs in the wall, and so I took a couple of uh, wires, and I put them into the plugs in the wall, and I attached it to my racing car set. Uh, thankfully, I thought that I would show my dad my excellent plan before I actually turned the switch on, and I was surprised that he was not as excited about my plan as, uh, as I was. And, uh, well, I, yes, his reaction was something that I've never forgotten. Uh, I, I was shocked, but not because of I uh, got, got electrocuted. Uh, but this didn't discourage my interest in science. I uh, ended up going off to university and studying engineering to kind of, uh, you know, fulfill that particular interest. 
uh, and uh, even though uh, after studying engineering, I then went to study theology, I have always kept up a bit of an interest in the incredible science and technology advances that we've seen in the world even this century. But this year, I actually had the opportunity to appreciate uh, science and technology in uh, a different way. Uh, as many of you know, uh, my wife Simone is uh, currently um, about to have some surgery on her neck to have a, a tumour removed from there. And, uh, well, it's concerning that, you know, to have to have surgery is, uh, is never a good thing. Uh, we've been so thankful for the fact that modern scientific medicine means that even a fairly significant piece of surgery, the surgeon is quite confident that he'll be able to uh, remove the tumour successfully and that, in fact, if there aren't any complications, Asimone should make a, a complete recovery uh, from, this, uh, from this quite uh, difficult thing, that, that uh, health issue. Uh, science, it really can. It can do so many wonderful things. Uh, in 2023, it plays such a dominant part in our lives every day, doesn't it? Uh, whether it's the things that you do for fun, the things that you do at work, uh, the way that you care for your health, uh, everything uh, ha is dependent, highly dependent on our scientific understanding and our scientific advances that, that have happened over the last century. And I think in a world where science is so dominant and where science plays such a large role in our lives, when it seems so very helpful and even at times life-changing, it can start to seem like maybe science is everything, as if science has the answers to every question. Science can tell you how to improve yourself. Science can tell you how to fix the problems of our world, how to optimise your own happiness, how to tackle issues like injustice and uh, conflict and environmental problems. And in the end, maybe science is all there is. Uh, the famous physicist Stephen Hawking, uh, he made this claim in 2011. Philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. See what he's saying there. He believes that, that there are no important questions that science can't answer. There's no worthwhile knowledge outside of what science can discover. And for Stephen Hawking and for other scientists, uh, many other scientists like him, of course, it's not just philosophy that's dead, it's also theology that's dead. The study of God in a scientific world, it can seem as if basically God has also been pushed out. There's no room anymore for a creator. If you can explain life, the universe and everything through science, well, God has become redundant. And if you can't prove God through science, well, then faith in Him is irrational. Uh, you might as well believe in Santa Claus or the flying spaghetti monster as the creator God of the Bible. Now, my guess is uh, here today we perhaps have a, uh, a range of views about the place of science in our lives. Uh, perhaps uh, some of you are here today and you share Stephen Hawking's view. Uh, you think that in a scientific world, the idea of God or Creator is at the very best unnecessary and at worst, it's really destructive and irrational and backward. 
probably many of you here this morning, given that we are in church after all, perhaps do believe in a Creator, but maybe you find your faith challenged at times by people like Stephen Hawking when, when you hear those kind of comments from high-profile scientists in, uh, in the news or maybe people at work or in your family who echo those ideas and you struggle to kind of sometimes reconcile your belief in a Creator with, the, uh, with a world that seems so dominated by science. And uh, perhaps some of you here have never really given this topic much thought before. But, but I hope that wherever you are on that spectrum, that today, uh, as we think about the place of science and the place of God and the place of our world, our cre- uh, the, uh, the universe, that actually we can, uh, I can offer a helpful perspective for you. And today, I particularly want to question the idea that science has all the answers. And I want to question the idea that science and belief in a creator are incompatible. And and as well as questioning those ideas, I want to suggest to you that while science is wonderful in its place, science actually leaves important questions unanswered. And when it comes to answering those important questions, not only is belief in a creating God compatible with science, it actually gives us the best answer, the most rational explanation for life, the universe and everything. So let me invite you uh, for a minute to imagine that you have painted a beautiful picture of a flower. Now, that is hard for some of us to imagine because of our painting skills, but just uh, come with me here. Imagine that you have just painted this beautiful picture. What can science tell you about that picture? Well, it might be able to tell you about the colours and the wavelengths of light that uh, they emit. Uh, Perhaps it can tell you about the chemical composition of the paints It might be able to tell you about the the different muscle movements that your body has made to move the paintbrush. Uh, Perhaps even science, you know, you could scan your brain while you are painting and work out uh, which parts of your brain that you're being used as you created it. And by that might be able to tell you a bit about how you are feeling. Science can tell you a lot of things about painting, but can science tell you why you painted it? Can science tell you what you are hoping to communicate by that painting? Can science tell you who you are hoping to give joy with that painting? See, science is incredibly powerful at answering the how questions. It's incredibly powerful at answering questions about the material world, the chemical composition, the physical properties. Science is much less successful at answering purpose questions, at answering personal questions. And it's great to know the chemical chemical composition and the physical properties of a a painting, but surely for most people, those questions are, are not the most important ones. The most important questions about a painting are, are who painted it and why? You know, most people don't go to an art gallery to get a scientific analysis of what's happened in the paintings. People go to an art gallery to experience the beauty, to appreciate the beautiful pictures. And people have been doing that long before 
you could analyse a picture scientifically. And if we kind of scale up from this beautiful painting, the same is actually true of our universe and our worlds. Science is fantastic at analysing the composition of our world, the physical laws that govern our universe, but it doesn't actually tell us the purpose. It doesn't tell us why there is something rather than nothing. Now, many times scientists uh, have actually tried to overcome this shortcoming in science and scientists, some scientists have argued quite forcefully that science does tell us the purpose of the universe. And they argue that the purpose of the universe is very clear. There is no purpose. Uh, biologist Richard Dawkins, who I've uh, quoted before, uh, he writes in his book, Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, the thing about this statement is, Richard Dawkins might be a scientist, but this, this claim about the universe, about what we should expect about the universe, that's not actually a scientific claim. That is a philosophical interpretation of science. You see, even if Philip, uh, Richard Dawkins is correct and there is uh, features of our universe that are random or mechanical or governed by laws, the implications of making those observations are not science. That is where there is a philosophical or a theological question. What do these observations mean? And the belief that there is absolutely no purpose outside of the material world is actually not science. That belief is a philosophy. It's called naturalism or perhaps scientism. The belief that science is all that there is. And I want to suggest this morning that scientism is much less convincing than science. Does anyone really live as if there is no good and no evil and no purpose in the universe? Does anyone really live as if humans are just blobs of organised mud? No way. We humans universally have an intense sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice. We have an intense sense that there is a purpose and meaning in our lives. The interesting thing is, even some of the scientists uh, who claim to believe that there is a purely naturalistic world, they actually struggle to consistently live like this. Uh, look at this other quote from Stephen Hawking, who I quoted earlier. He says, We are each free to believe what we want, and it is my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to the profound realisation there is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe and for that I'm extremely grateful. See the inconsistency there? There's no creator. Well, why are you feeling appreciating the grand design. There's no designer to appreciate. Uh, who do you feel gratitude for when everything is blind and meaningless indifference? 
If everything is impersonal, well, gratitude is entirely irrational. See, what I want to suggest this morning is that while science is incredibly useful and powerful, the philosophy of naturalism, which says that science is everything, that is much less convincing and it's not clear at all that that is the rational way to see our world. And I want to suggest to you that the idea of a creator actually makes much better sense of the universe we live in. I want to suggest to you that that observation from Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands, that that actually is a rational view in our world, more rational than naturalistic science. See, one of the fundamental observations of science is that our world operates according to a series of scientific laws. And again, some scientists uh, have argued that if you discover a law, then you don't need a creator anymore because the, the fact that there's a law somehow brings the world into existence. But the truth is, the existence of laws of science are just as likely to point to the existence of a creator as to the lack of a creator. Uh, the famous scientist Galileo Galilei, obviously uh, you've probably heard of him uh, because he's a famous scientist, but also because he's uh, uh, often held up as an example of how uh, religion is uh, against science because he had a conflict with the Roman Catholic Pope in his time. But Galileo was a firm believer in a creator. He wrote, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Or much more recently, just to show it's not only an old thing, uh, last century Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman wrote, uh, the fact that there are rules at all to be checked is a kind of miracle. That it is possible to find a rule like the inverse square law of gravitation is some sort of miracle. You see, the fact that there are scientific laws in our universe, the fact that we can understand these laws with our brains, the fact that we can model them with mathematics, None of these things are scientific necessities. And the fact that our world is so orderly and rational and understandable, I think it fits much better with a belief in an intelligent, orderly creator. It fits much better with the orderly creation account that we see in the Bible than with a universe of random, meaningless chance. Surely you would expect a universe that came into existence through that to be random and uh, totally disorderly. But it's not only the rational and orderly nature of our universe, the laws of the universe that suggest a creator. Our whole giant universe is incredibly fine-tuned to support our life here on Earth. Uh, you already know this uh, because uh, Lydia's uh, taken my thunder, but there are about... 200 billion trillion stars in our universe. Uh, it, it is mind-blowingly immense, isn't it? But did you know that many of the laws and constants that govern this immense universe are exactly fine-tuned to what is required to make human life possible on our one tiny little planet. For example, if the uh, force of gravity varied by enough to change your weight by one billionth of a gram, 
then the universe would have no stars and no planets and certainly no life. And there are many other constants and forces in a universe that are exactly the same. It's as if this whole vast universe, billions and trillions of stars and planets and galaxies, as if all of it was finely tuned, especially prepared, just for us, just for life to exist on our little blue planet. possible. That could have come about by chance. Some scientists like to speculate about infinite numbers of universes and we were just the one that got lucky. But I don't think there's any way that you can say that a belief in an infinite number of universes is more rational than a belief that our incredibly finely tuned universe has actually been created for us by a loving creator who the Bible tells us created us in his image. The reliable laws of nature, the fine-tuning to bring about life, the ability that we have to comprehend and make sense of, uh, of science itself and the laws that are in our universe, I think they all give us rational reasons to support the, uh, the belief that there is a Creator. But as incredible and as uh, orderly and fine-tuned as our universe is, there is, of course, another side to our experience of the world, isn't there? There is the experience of pain, of suffering, and of evil. We see these things around us, we experience them in our own lives, and often they are presented as a kind of further hurdle to belief in a Creator. Why would a loving Creator who fine-tuned this universe uh, so carefully to make us, why would He uh, allow evil and suffering to be part of this creation. No, no, some of you, this might be a very, a very personal question, but this morning I just want to step back and look at the big picture for a minute and say that pain and suffering actually present just as big a problem for a naturalistic world as they do for a creator. Because again, if we were all just products of random indifferent processes, surely we'd be indifferent to evil and suffering around us. Uh, surely we would, uh, wouldn't feel so strongly that something that was just natural and random because it was the way the universe is, that that is so unnatural and so wrong. But that is what we feel, isn't it, about evil and suffering, that it's unnatural and wrong. And the Bible has the answer to this problem. It suggests that the world is messed up because human beings have rebelled against our Creator and gone off track. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 1 says, uh, Although God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made, uh, a little bit later it says, People exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Because of this, while we, we still see evidences of God's original perfect design in the universe, so much of what we see is also warped and spoiled because humanity has rejected our Creator and His instructions. And to me, uh, this idea that we are fallen creatures in a created world, that is a much more convincing explanation of our contradictory world than it's just a random world of meaningless chance. 
to me, the idea of a created but fallen world accounts for those uh, kind of contrasts, those difficult contradictions that we see in the world where, you know, on the one hand, we see genius and love and beauty and kindness. And yet, on the other hand, we see evil and hatred and ugliness and selfishness. Sometimes we even see them in the same person. Sometimes we even see them all in ourselves. And the Bible doesn't really give us answers to why God allowed these things, but it does tell us that God the Creator loves us so much and cares about us that He loved that that He was willing to become part of the creation to save us. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, tells us that the Word became flesh, that the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, that the Creator entered His creation, and after dwelling among us, He gave His life for us on the cross. And then he rose from the dead because he wants to make a beautiful new creation, a perfect new creation where there'll be no more evil and no more suffering. I think this message is an incredible message. For me personally, uh, understanding this message was why eventually I decided to uh, switch from working with the, you know, the wonders of science as an engineer and spend my life teaching people about the Creator God because I believe that it's the Creator God that explains the world that we see and experience. The, it's the most rational uh, understanding of the world that we live in. But not only is it the most rational understanding, it's actually the understanding that gives hope and meaning and the best way to live in our world. As I mentioned at the start, we've been very thankful this year uh, for the science that is enabling Simone to have some uh, surgery. But we're also incredibly thankful that we can pray to our Creator God, that we can put ourselves in His hands and know that whatever uh, happens through this process, uh, that He will be with us and He will watch over us. In our experience, belief in a Creator God is not only reasonable in our scientific world, it is the best way to explain our experience. It is a source of hope, a source of meaning that science on its own can never offer. And so I hope that this morning, however uh, you might be thinking about the world and science and creation, uh, wherever you might be up to there, that you can see that for many people, uh, Science and a belief in God do fit together. And there are, in fact, rational reasons to look at the universe around us and believe that it was made for us by a loving Creator. A Creator uh, who still cares for us and wants us to trust Him and have a relationship with Him. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on uh, the world that you have made and the evidence that we see there for your care and love and sovereignty and power. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to think clearly about these things so that we can appreciate the wonders of your scientific uh, universe, uh, but in the midst of all the scientific uh, science and technology that we have today, not lose sight of you, our uh, Creator, who we owe worship and who uh, we owe faith. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's. Uh